May we stand in honor of our gospel as we read today from Luke, chapter 14, beginning with verse 25. Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can be my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. This is the word of the Lord. When I knew I was going to be preaching today and looked up the text, I just had to shake my head. Great. (laughs) Our text today is never going to be one that will be on very many people's list of favorite scriptures. Jesus is talking about hating father and mother, selling all your possessions, making sacrifices for the gospel. Now that is why we want to drag ourselves out of bed on Sunday morning and come to church, right? (laughs) Well, that is what happens when we use the lectionary. You don't always draw the easy scripture straw for the week. I can remember reading this text as a teenager and thinking, Gosh, I can't imagine hating my mother and father. This doesn't sound like the Jesus we know. In this text, Jesus is trying to shock his listeners into looking behind the hype about him and his mission and tune into the fine print about what it means to really be a follower of Jesus. Jesus wants people following him to count the cost of discipleship. And to drive this point home, he starts with hyperbole. Using exaggeration to make a point was a standard Hebrew way of speaking and teaching in those days. It's sort of like a parent of a teenager who threatens to take all their clothes lying in the floor, give them to goodwill, and then they'll be left with nothing to wear if they don't clean their room. An exaggeration, yes, but the message is still implied, clean up your room. Jesus knows that many who are following him have seen his miracles. They've witnessed his healings, and they've come to hope that he is the Messiah, the one that will deliver them. So they are excited, and they're wanting to know more about him. But what they don't understand is Jesus isn't looking for followers. He's looking for disciples. Jesus has finished his ministry in Galilee and is heading to Jerusalem, which is the pinnacle of religious activity. But what those crowds that were following him through the countryside don't know 
is that he is headed toward a cross. Jesus kept saying to his followers and to his own disciples, count the cost. This is not going to end like you think and you hope it will. But there is a bigger plan. In our world today, we hear of situations that call on us to count the cost. Our president and Congress are talking about what to do in response to the killing in Syria. What will be the cost financially, morally, diplomatically for their decision? And just last week, we remembered the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington led by Dr. Martin Luther King. There was an NPR feature story about a woman named Viola Liuzzo, a woman who was killed during the civil rights marches. She was a housewife and a mother of five, and she'd been very active in the NAACP in Detroit, and she was horrified at the violence she saw inflicted upon black protesters when she watched television. So when she heard of a four-day, 54-mile walk from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, To support voting rights, she packed a bag. Viola told her husband, it's everybody's fight. She kissed her children goodbye and began the drive south. Led by the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., Viola and thousands of other marchers walked to Montgomery, where King spoke on the Capitol steps, telling the crowd that freedom was not far away. That night, Viola agreed to help transport local marches back to their homes. On one of her trips, a car filled with Ku Klux Klan members tried to force her off the road, and finally they pulled alongside Viola's car and shot her in the head. The 39-year-old wife and mother died instantly. Before she made her decision to participate in the march, I'm sure Viola thought about the risks and the time away from her husband and children, and yet her heart compelled her to make this journey when she decided it's everybody's fight. When I have time, one of my favorite TV shows is Love It or List It. Anybody else? Okay. The premise of the show goes like this. A family's outgrown their current home, or it no longer works for the family, and they are stuck with the, the dilemma of either renovating it to meet their needs or selling it for a bigger house. There's one spouse or partner who wants to remodel and stay in the house, and the other spouse or partner wants to leave it and move to a new house. And, of course, there are two teams that come to the rescue on the show. One team is led by a designer and her crew who are given a certain budget by the family and a list of things the family wants that can be done to make them stay in the house and love it. The other team is headed up by a realtor who, again, has been given a certain budget by the couple in order to find this family a new home that, they, that will meet their needs and encourage them to move and therefore list it. It never fails. The redesign team starts out with this list of things the family wants and needs and promises the family that the house will be perfect and lovely when they are done, but before long... As they start to rip out the carpet or take down the walls, something always happens that they didn't know about, even though they had counted the cost. There's water damage, mold, termites, and the money for the project gets diverted into making the structure of the house sound again. 
and the list of things that the family wanted gets cut short, and the family is clearly disappointed. Even though they had a budget and they did count the cost, they were not able to really get all that they wanted. It reminds me that that's a part of life. We have to count the cost, and as believers, sometimes we may get what we want, and other times, at that moment, it seems like we have to restructure and start again. In our text today, Jesus says these followers must count the cost before they commit to spiritual remodeling that Jesus is talking about. Remodeling our lives is very hard work. Scraping off that veneer of self-righteousness and replacing it with the righteousness of Christ. Or pulling back the drywall and exposing those places in our lives where our priorities aren't necessarily about the kingdom, but about our wants and desires. These are all hard things to do, but it is the call of Jesus in this passage to count the cost of discipleship so that we might be transformed in ways that will be pleasing to God. Now, we don't usually like to talk about making sacrifices these days. Most of us are already pushed to the limits with responsibilities for work, for our families, for our finances. To think about having to sacrifice for Jesus can just become overwhelming. Gosh, we just wanted to come to church, feel good, sit in the pew, and then go back out. But I think when we talk about sacrifice in this way it can begin to sound negative. What else are we going to have to do? How much more money are we going to have to give? What will we have to give up? But I want to challenge us to look at this equation in a different way. When we give to God, we often receive threefold. That is a positive, not a negative. And when we take the time to care for another or to listen to someone who's struggling, that is a plus we receive. It's not a minus. In the Gospel of Luke, he says, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Now that is spiritual arithmetic. And that is God's desire for us. God wants us to truly count the cost of discipleship, to jump in the pool and start swimming, not sit on the sidelines and pretend to be a swimmer. At points all along the way of our walk with Christ, it might be disheartening, and we might want to give up and just move away from those things that that cause us pain and discomfort. But when we look back, we often see the hand of God moving us along so that we can find wholeness and a desire for the things of God. Allowing God to transform us can be risky business. What if God wants us to make room for things in our lives that we we just don't want to deal with right now? What if being a follower of Christ calls us to make uncomfortable decisions? Or ask us to look at things in new ways. We as a community of faith in recent days have had to look at what it means to count the cost in the life of the church. We've had to look at how we broaden the circle of love and inclusivity in our church community 
and also how to preserve our history and our heritage, both important parts of the equation and thus the struggle for discernment within our church. And this year, we've also had to wrestle with the decision about our building. Is it faithful to sink money, the amount of money required for renovation, into a building when it could be given for missions? Or are we about the mission of Christ both now and for the future when we expand and remodel our buildings so that more can come to worship and learn and find this way of faith and love? Hard questions and sacrifices come with making the decision to move forward. Inconvenience in our building, people asking us to give more money, all of us needing to take on more responsibility for making this church function and grow, the cost of discipleship can sometimes feel heavy. We are each called to be disciples, not just followers. We are called to the real work of loving those who are different, those who are marginalized. We're called to give money and our lives in big and small ways. Not all of us are going to be frontline activists like Viola, but I will say that all of us are called to be active messengers of the gospel through our own unique witness and calling. And I would even say that all of us are called to discomfort on behalf of the gospel. This will look different for each one of us, but if you aren't experiencing some sort of pinch or discomfort in your walk of faith, I would challenge you to examine your commitment. I had an interesting phone call this week at church. We have had several this week after Joe's article in The Courier. Thank you, Joe. So sometimes when a person calls and asks to speak to a minister, we have learned to be a little bit leery. I had a phone call where someone called and wanted to make an appointment and come talk to a minister. I explained that Joe was on sabbatical, and this person insisted that they come and talk to a minister. Now, this was late in the afternoon, and I had things to get done before I left that day. I really didn't have time to deal with it right then, so I asked if this person had ever been to Highland. They said yes. I checked. We didn't have their name and told him that a minister would call in the morning. So in the course of this, I did ask, what is it that you would like to talk about with a minister? And this person said they wanted to talk about baptism and hell. Well, I had a little bit of an uneasy feeling as I hung up the phone, and I decided I'd worry about this in the morning. And before I could get to my desk for very long and pick up that number and make a phone call again, the phone rang. And guess what? It was this same young man asking for an appointment to talk to a minister. All right, I will meet you at 2 o'clock. And after I hung up, I thought, I just do not have time for this today. I've got a sermon to finish. I've got to go make a hospital visit before I can go home. And experience had taught me sometimes to be a little bit leery of these kinds of requests. In this day and age, you have to be a little cautious. So, sure enough, at 2 o'clock on the dot, I look out my door, and there's a young man who's come to see me. He's well-dressed, handsome young man. Looks normal enough, so I invite him back to my office and close the door. (laughs) 
closed the door almost all the way, and we started our conversation. I asked why he needed to come and talk to a minister, and he proceeded to tell me that he was Jewish, although he had attended Highland, and that he'd heard a lot about hell lately and wondered about that. He wasn't sure that Jews believed in hell, but he didn't want to go there, as none of us do. And as we talked, it became apparent that he was a very intelligent young man. He knew that in the Christian faith you had to be baptized, and he wanted to do that so he could avoid hell. Now, I had a choice at this point to either talk to him about the plan of salvation and baptism or hell, or I could find out more about his journey. And so I asked him to tell me what he knew about hell. And as we began to talk, it became more clear And I observed with him that he seemed a little fearful about this. And I asked about where he was hearing about hell. And he confessed that some of it he had heard in his head. And he hung his head a little bit ashamed. And it was at that moment that God's grace was evident. For I know that we all are a little bit broken, that we all are in need of grace, He said he loved God, and he didn't want to go to hell. We talked further. We talked about a plan. And at one point, he shared that he had a brother who was schizophrenic. And he said, do you think schizophrenics go to hell? My heart broke. And I asked him if he thought people with cancer went to hell. And I assured him that his problem for now was a matter of biology, not one of theology. We talked some more, and I assured him that God loved him. And he said he loved God, and he asked if he could come back to talk after he went to the doctor and took care of some things. And I told him that would be fine. As I walked him to the door, I felt awash with the love of Christ. And I felt honored to be able to speak words of love and hope to this bright young man. In those moments of grace, my busy schedule didn't mean anything to God, just my willingness to be available. And I was grateful and touched that in my better self, I had made time to share the love of God with this one who came seeking. In this spiritual equation, God taught and blessed us both. And so the challenge comes to us. Are we willing to be disciples and not just a group of followers? Are we willing to count the cost and forsake our selfish needs, our skewed schedules and agendas, and our journey with this one who is love and peace? A very visible reminder of the cost of discipleship is here before us on the table. We participate in this meal as a means of joining with our Lord until He comes again. Our Savior invites all those who trust in him to share this meal which has been prepared. And as we prepare to be fed, may we remember the peace that our Savior places in our hearts. And can we share that peace with one another today as we say, may the peace of Christ be with you.